Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about the imaginary device that's the basis for all computers and what Godzilla can tell us about our collective anxiety. We'll also answer a listener question about exoplanets with a special guest, Ralph Crew from the podcast Science News and Cues. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Today would be Alan Turing's 107th birthday. You may have never heard of Alan Turing, but you are definitely familiar with his work. He's the namesake behind the Turing machine, which is a theoretical device that's the basis for all computers. Pretty big deal. And it's also Pride Month, so let's celebrate by learning about one of history's underappreciated LGBT scientists. Around the time when he was born after the turn of the 20th century on June 23, 1912, a computer referred not to an electronic device, but to a person. From tax documents to scientific calculations, all the math performed up until that point happened with pencil and paper. But even when they were broken down into their smallest parts, some math problems were too hard for even the sharpest minds in math. And that's what led the English mathematician to ponder the question of what it even means for a task to be computable. On its face, a task is considered computable if you can lay out the instructions or the algorithm someone or something should use to solve the problem. Now ask yourself what would happen if you could create, or at least imagine, a perfect machine that never runs out of resources or time that can always compute the computable. You'd know beyond a shadow of a doubt what was non-computable. And that was the inspiration for the Turing machine, which Turing first wrote about in 1937. A Turing machine, at its simplest, is made up of a read-write head with a paper tape of unlimited length that passes through it. That tape acts as the machine's data storage, just like your computer's hard drive. The head contains a sort of indicator that can be set to a particular position, or state, which can change based on how you program it. The tape is divided into squares, and each square is either blank or bears one symbol, zero or one. For each square it lands on, the read-write head can take one of six different actions, from reading and writing the symbol to moving the tape. And you can program the machine to take a different action depending on which symbol it encountered. Zeros and ones. Sound familiar? The brilliance of this hypothetical device wasn't just that it was able to compute things for us. It was that it showed us what we could not compute. If something can be computed, it can be computed on a Turing machine. Not bad for an idea that's nearly 100 years old. Happy birthday, Alan Turing. We got a listener question about exoplanets, and we invited our friend Ralph Crew to help us answer it. He's the creator and co-host of Science News and Cues, also known as Snack, a Carnegie Science Center podcast. And he's also the program development coordinator for Buell Planetarium and Observatory at Carnegie Science Center. You heard from Ralph on this podcast a few months ago, and we decided to hit him up again to help us satisfy some curiosity. Here's what he told us. So this question comes from Julian, who asks, are there any exoplanets or stars in between the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy? And if we lived in such a planetary system, would we be able to see stars with the naked eye? The answer is yes to all of it. Uh, Not only are there stars in between the spiral arms, but all the stars in the galaxy that are in the disk will transition from being within the arms and in between the arms throughout their lifetimes as they orbit the Milky Way. The arms aren't uh, sort of solid objects. They're not continuous. Like the stars within those arms don't travel in that arm forever. They're more like 
sort of a wave of traffic in on a highway or in a crowd of people bunching up together. And so that sort of bunching can move around the galaxy. Hopefully that makes some sense. And uh, since almost all the stars that we've really looked at carefully seem to have planets, then the answer about exoplanets is also a yes. Now, if we lived on such a planet, would we be able to see stars with the naked eye. Yes, you would be able to see stars. Uh, the density of the stars varies in different regions. And uh, things like if you are within a large amount of dust, uh, there are dust lanes in the galaxy that could obscure your view a little bit, then you'd have some issues. But some of the stars that we see in our own night sky are pretty far away, and uh, we are still able to see them. So there would not be anywhere within the galaxy where if you had an unobstructed view of the night sky, you wouldn't be able to see any stars with the unaided eye. Once again, that was Ralph Crew, Program Development Coordinator for Buell Planetarium and Observatory at Carnegie Science Center. You can hear more from Ralph on his podcast, Science News and Cues, also known as SNAQ. That's S-N-A-Q. We'll put a link to that in today's show notes. And thanks for your question, Julian. Today's episode is sponsored by Arm & Hammer and their new cloud control cat litter. You know what I love? Cats. I'm definitely a cat person. Cody, are you, you seem like a dog person, right? We've been over this. I like animals. They're fine. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Dog person? Like, do oh. I want to own a dog in the city and have to walk it outside every time it has to go to the bathroom? No. But will I pet a dog if it walks up to me? Yes. Same with cats. Okay. I mean, like, I just, I don't get along with dogs. You know, dogs are really excited about most humans. They are not excited about me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you haven't met the one that's right for you. Oh, that's an easy thing to say. But no, <laughs> cats, though, I really love because they take time to get to know. You know, you really have to work for it. And so once they give you that affection, it's like, oh, man, I have earned this. I am in their good graces now. But the bad thing about cats is the litter box, which is why Arm & Hammer created new cloud control litter. There's no cloud of nasty stuff when I scoop. It's 100% dust-free, free of heavy perfumes, and it helps reduce airborne dander from scooping. So what happens in the litter box stays in the litter box. New cloud control cat litter by Arm & Hammer. More power to you. I don't know if I'm a cat or a dog person, but you know what I definitely am? A Godzilla person. Oh, of course. And I'm guessing Godzilla probably doesn't use a litter box. Also, fun fact about Godzilla, guess who scientists think could be a symbol of growing collective anxiety in the world? It, is it Godzilla? It is! <laughs> and that's why today we are wrapping up with research on Godzilla. And before you delete this episode forever, you should know that there are, in fact, plenty of lessons we can take away from the fictional king of the monsters. The Turing machine was imaginary too, so let's be fair to this giant lizard, okay? Anyway, this research comes from a team of scientists at Dartmouth who looked at Godzilla's size over the years. When the original film Gojira came out in 1954, Godzilla was a 50-meter-tall embodiment of impending nuclear threats to Japan. The movie was a direct response to Castle Bravo. That was the largest nuclear weapon test ever conducted by the United States. That test resulted in a 15-megaton explosion, which is more than a thousand times the scope of the Hiroshima bomb. And it spread nuclear fallout hundreds of miles beyond the test site in the Marshall Islands. The Castle Bravo fallout had grave consequences for the Japanese population, including poisoning their tuna supply and leaving the crew of a Japanese tuna trawler with acute radiation sickness. 
Seven months after the incident, Godzilla was born, a fictional product of a very real fear of nuclear testing. The gargantuan radioactive lizard was imagined to be a victim of an American hydrogen bomb test that destroyed the creature's deep sea ecosystem. And in the action that follows, Godzilla takes revenge by wreaking havoc on Tokyo in a clear reference to the bombing of Japanese cities during World War II. Dozens of movies later, the star monster of the 2019 film Godzilla, King of the Monsters, stands at double his original size and powerful enough to take down a league of god-sized monsters unleashed to destroy the world. That's not a natural rate of growth. The Dartmouth researchers proposed that just like it was in the beginning, Godzilla is still a symbol of our fears. They used U.S. military spending as a quantifiable representation of national anxiety, and they found a strong positive correlation between Godzilla's growth and military development. Fortunately, there is a silver lining to this story, and that's that the Godzilla franchise contains a call to action amid the wreckage. At some point in the Godzilla films, humanity almost always realizes they need to work together to defeat Godzilla's near invincibility. Somehow, a giant lizard's ability to destroy has repeatedly led us to discover our own responsibility to band together and rebuild. And this message is vital now more than ever. Before we wrap up, we want to give a special shout out to Mohammed Shafaz and Dr. Mary Yancey, who are executive producers for today's episode thanks to their generous support on Patreon. Thank you so much. If you're listening and you want to support Curiosity Daily, then visit patreon.com slash curiosity.com all spelled out. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.